Welcome. We're in part two of this series called Talking Points. The subtitle is The Perfect Blend of Politics and Religion. As if there could be a perfect blend, right? This is a series designed to make us all a little uncomfortable, but hopefully at the end, it'll make us all a little better. Because after all, the church should be the safest place in the world to talk about anything. Now, here's the thing. If you're a Christian, there's a little bit of tension here. This is, where we, this is kind of where we left off with last time together. But if you're not a Christian, you get to sit on the outside and judge us to see whether or not we do this well. In fact, my hunch is this. If we had done what we're going to talk about today better, you may be more interested in being a part of this Christian faith, or maybe you would have never abandoned your Christian faith to begin with. So listen carefully. The tension for those of us who are Jesus followers is this. Are we willing to put our faith filter ahead of our political filter? Are we willing to put our faith filter ahead of our political filter? Are we willing to be Christ followers first and Republicans and Democrats and Libertarians and whatever else you might be second? Are we willing to follow Jesus? This is the tough one. Are we willing to follow Jesus when following Jesus creates space between us and our political party or space between us and our political candidate? Now, to be clear, I'm not suggesting that you not be political. I'm not suggesting that you not wade into politics or talk about your politics or, you know, run for office. I think we should lean into what's happening into our nation. And for those of you who feel called to enter into the fray, you should step right in. But what I am suggesting is that we take what Jesus said, that we looked at last week, that we should take that really seriously, that we not allow the political climate to divide the church because there's one thing Jesus prayed for more than anything else. This is what he prayed for right before he was crucified, right before he said, I'm gonna do this thing, I'm gonna build this movement. He prayed for our unity, that we would be allowed to disagree politically because we always will, but we would love unconditionally and that we would begin to pray for unity. Now, the interesting thing is this. In the first century, when we read the Gospels, it's so fascinating because everybody wanted Jesus to be on their side. In fact, they would question him and try to, try to get him to agree with whatever their viewpoint was. Everybody wanted a piece of Jesus. They wanted him to choose their side, and, and that's true today. Both parties are convinced that Jesus would be on their side if he were kind of walking the earth today. Republicans are absolutely convinced that Jesus would be a Republican because of their values. And Democrats would say, absolutely, Jesus would be a Democrat because of his concern and his care for people. And so everybody wants a piece of Jesus. The interesting thing is this. If I were given the assignment, <clears throat> Jim, could you come up with, with a sermon that would demonstrate that, in fact, the Republican platform is in sync with the teachings of Jesus? I could do that. And if somebody else were to come along and say, Jim, would you create a sermon that, that would show that the Democratic platform um, and their values, they're kind of in sync with the teachings of Jesus? I could do that too. Because when you interpret the words of Jesus through your political filter, it's amazing. He's so red. He's so blue. It's amazing how often that he agrees with you. So if you start with that filter, there's plenty. And, and the truth is, both sides quote the Bible. Both sides quote Jesus. The really funny thing is they both actually quote the same verses. So, so the question is this. Can we put our Jesus-following filter, our faith filter, ahead of our political filter? And it's very difficult to do, but I'm going to try to show you today the way forward. Now, Tony Evans, he's a famous pastor and teacher, and he said this once. Jesus did not come to take sides. He came to take over. And he's absolutely right. Jesus came to introduce the kingdom of God to the earth, the kingdom of God values, the upside down kingdom, where those with wealth and power leverage their wealth and power and resource for those with less power and less resource. The kingdom of God, where the king laid down his life for his subjects rather than demand his subjects lay down their lives for him. 
The kingdom of God that was so broad and so inclusive that he said, and everybody's invited to participate in it. But the kingdom of God will always at some level conflict with the kingdom of man. And the kingdom of God will always at some level conflict with your political party and the platform, uh, your political party's uh, uh, candidates. There's always going to be a tension. This is why it's so foolish for the church to ever be divided over a candidate or a political party. Because even though it's difficult for some of us to acknowledge, at the end of the day, no political party is going to line up completely with the values of the kingdom of Jesus. But again, it's foolish for us to be divided because we're supposed to be kingdom people first and political people second. So here's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to give you a very simple template to help us understand where agreement ends and diversive opinions begin. The Apostle Paul, who we talk about all the time here, he steps onto the pages of history as somebody who hates Christians, but later he becomes one. And, and in two of his letters, he gives us a phrase that I think gives us a great starting point for putting together this template. He uses a phrase that perhaps you've never seen before because he only uses it twice in his letters. And the phrase is this. He refers to the law of Christ. Now, the law of Christ, as we're going to discover, was his shorthand for Jesus' new covenant command that we talk about all the time. When Jesus gathered with his disciples on, on the final Passover, he said, hey, hey guys, I'm giving you a new command because we're establishing a new covenant. And, and as uh, you probably know, the new command was really simple. It was simply this. You are to love one another as I have loved you. This isn't one way, this is two way. You are to love one another as I have loved you. And then he said this, by this unique brand of love, everyone will know you are my disciple if you love one another. This is a two-way thing. It's a community thing. It, it's, a, it's a family thing. So the Apostle Paul takes the idea and he pushes it through all of his letters with this unique ethic of, of Jesus followers. And, and this phrase, the law of Christ, is the phrase he uses to take his readers back to that night, back to that specific idea. It's the kingdom ethic. It's the marching orders for Jesus followers. Here's a couple of examples. He writes this in his letter to the, to the Christians living in Corinth. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave. I mean, that is strong language, especially in a day and age where there were slaves everywhere. I have made myself a slave to everyone. Why, Paul? To win as many as possible. Paul says, look, I'm on a mission and I am willing to do anything short of sin to convince Gentiles that God has done something on their behalf in the world. He continues, to those not having the law, talking about the law of Moses, the Torah, I became like one of those not having the law. In other words, I became a Gentile in order to reach Gentiles, even though I'm Jewish. This is the extreme to which he was willing to go. But then he qualifies it and he says, though I am not free from the law of God, to which a Jewish reader would say, wait a minute, you just said you're not under the law. You're not, you're not going to act like somebody under the law, but, but you're not underneath the law of God? I, I, that doesn't make any sense. What are you talking about? So you, you, you pulled out from underneath the Torah, but somehow you're still under the law of God. And Paul's saying, yeah, I'm still under God's authority. I'm just not under the Torah. And then he tells us what law he's under. And here's where he says our phrase. But I am under the law of Christ. That's our paraphrase of it. There it is. So I am no longer under the law of Moses, but I'm still under God's authority because I'm under the law of Christ. And this is what the law of Christ is. You are to love one another as I have loved you. In his letter to the Christians in, in, in the Roman province of Galatia, he says this, and it's a little bit more descriptive. Carry each other's burdens. When you see somebody who's burdened financially, somebody who's burdened with kids, somebody who's burdened with work, somebody who's burdened with a physical ailment or, or that has gotten tripped up in life, 
You're to carry one another's burdens. And again, this is an, an each, uh, this is an each other thing. This is an everybody thing. This is the body of Christ functioning like a body. Carry each other's burdens. And if you do, look at this. In this way, you will fulfill, and here it is again, the law of Christ. And what is the law of Christ? To love one another as I have loved you. When the concerns of others concern you and you act on it, you are fulfilling the law of Christ. So here's the thing, as Jesus followers, regardless of your political persuasion, if you're a Jesus follower, the law of Christ, that is your marching orders. And that is the law of Christ should inform over time as we grow as Christians, our conscience. That our conscience should become more kind of hardwired into the law of Christ. So that when we do something that is contrary to loving as Christ loved us, it should bother us. It should ding our conscience. But not just our, our conscience personally. It should ding our conscience collectively. That we should all be as a group, as a body. We should all be disturbed and irritated and convicted. Uh, when we see some, so, some injustice, when we see people disrespecting somebody, when we, when we accidentally give people what they deserve, when we see people undermining their own future or their health or their relationship with their kids, when we see families undermining their integrity or undermining society, when we see these things, we should be moved and we should be moved to action. With somebody in, who's inside the church as a Jesus follower, we should, be, we should be moved by these things. And when we see those outside the church, it should bother us as well. And then we have to be measure, measured in our response. But our collective conscience, the thing that moves us to apology, that moves us to action, it's all tied to this idea that you are to love other people, to respect other people, to recognize the dignity of other people, the way that Jesus did for you that I left heaven for you, that I am not afraid of guilt by association. If Jesus had been concerned about guilt by association, he would have stayed in heaven. So, so he's like, look, he's saying, I want you to take your cue about how you treat other people and how you treat others from me. Because according to Jesus, if you want to set policy, what's good for people, that's what's good. What's best for people, that's what's best. And that leads us to the third part of our template, and that's this. The law of Christ informs our conscience, and to, to an informed conscience, we are to incorporate knowledge and wisdom. Now, let me explain why this is important. One of the great advantages of the human race is we are able to collect information and pass it to the next generation, because writing allowed one generation to gift the next generation with everything they learned, which gifted the next generation with everything that they had learned. Consequently, every generation is smarter than the generation before, and with knowledge comes extra wisdom and extra insight. And so as people of the 21st century, as we think about, uh, you know, what does it look like to live out this kingdom ethic, we should add to our informed conscience the knowledge of science and the knowledge of psychology and the wisdom that comes with our understanding of how our world works and understanding how we are made. All of this kind of, it kind of works together. Another way of thinking about it is this way. If somebody asks you where do babies come from, your answer to that question is determined by the age of the person asking, Right? When a four-year-old asks, you don't lie to them, but you give them an answer. You accommodate to their capacity. When a 15-year-old asks, you say something like, well, shouldn't you know by now? If a 25-year-old is asking from a graduate school context, you, you, you give an answer, but based on their capacity. In other words, we don't lie, but we always accommodate to the capacity of the person asking. And this is really fascinating. Your heavenly father, our God, accommodates to the capacity of his people. So when we look at Genesis, we see God accommodating to the capacity of an ancient, ancient kind of pre-science, pre-tylenol, never took a warm shower group of people. 
when Jesus manifests himself, he says, the kingdom has come. And as the kingdom son, king's son, I have come to dwell with you. He explains God, but he explains God in a way that the Old Testament didn't quite explain God. Why? Well, well people's capacity has changed. Things have changed. In every generation, our knowledge increases, our, our insight increases, and God's ability to help us understand how he made the world and how the world works increases. And as Christians, we should be on the forefront. We should never resist science. We should never resist discovery. We should be the most curious people because our faith is tethered, not to an interpretation of the text. Our faith is tethered to an event in history, the resurrection of Jesus. So we don't need to fear new. We don't need to fear science. Every once in a while, a generation comes along that gets into a, a run-and-gun battle or a spinning match with science, and it, it's so foolish. So we should incorporate into our informed conscience the knowledge and the wisdom that comes with this age that's been handed to us by the people that came before us. So the knowledge and wisdom combined with the informed conscience, that, that is you know, what we should use. That, that's what we should use to leverage or to determine which policies and platform and legislation we support. Let me go through it one more time. The law of Christ, if you're a Jesus follower, it's a non-negotiable. The law of Christ kind of speaks into this informed conscience. Over time, as you learn more and more and follow Jesus longer, your conscience is going to be shaped according to the law of Christ. Knowledge and wisdom, we naturally and intuitively incorporate this into our thinking. But here's the rub. When it comes to policy, when it comes to politics, there are, here's where we kind of get into disagreements as Christians. The reason that we will always have a disagreement is this. <clears throat> where you stand depends on where you sit. Where you take a stand depends on where you sit. You may have heard this before. This is called Miles Law. It was named for Rufus Miles, who was part of the Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson administration. This was his statement. And to, to kind of tease it out, here's what it means. That our cultural context, that where we sit, you know, where we live, who we were related to, how much money we had, our cultural context determines our perspective in life. It determines what you see and what you experience and how you see it and how you interpret it. And this is true for all of us. This is why most of you don't see any conflict between your faith and your politics. Not at all. You're, you're loving this series because you have some friends who need to, need to hear it, right? But, but you're good. People need, people need to put their faith first and their politics second. And that's why I'm a Republican because, you know, I put my faith first clearly and Republicans are right. Amen, Jim. You're right. I'm with you 100%. I, I, I got you. Faith first. That's why I'm a Democrat, right? Maybe. Probably not. Because our, our political views aren't shaped in a vacuum. And pausing to recognize this, pausing long enough to incorporate this into our thinking is what it means to be mature. And oh my goodness, do we need a little bit more maturity in our political discussions right now? In fact, pausing to recognize this is the way forward. Pausing to recognize this is how, we, is how the extremes, if they're mature, are willing to kind of move toward the middle. Now understand, I'm not suggesting that we all get in the middle and you know, we have a kumbaya moment and we all form some kind of new party and agree on everything. Let me say it again. There's always going to be disagreement when it comes to policy, platform, legislation. That's okay as long as we are mature enough to not allow it to divide us. It's a step toward unity despite political diversity. So political views and values, like all of our views and values, are shaped by a variety of things, most of which we had no control over. You know, where we lived, how we were raised, where we were educated, what we've been told, what we've seen, what we've experienced, all these things we have no control over. And if we can acknowledge this and take a deep breath, we all learn something. And we don't change what we believe, but we gain understanding in terms of why other people act the way they do or believe the way they believe. Now, 
that's, that's not dynamic. That just is. So what's our way forward? There's three things. We, we, we begin to listen. We begin by listening. Specifically, listen to people who don't experience the world the way you do. Not just the has and have nots, the Christians and, and, and the non-Christians, the young and the old, the black and the white, the gay and the straight, the married and single, new citizens, old citizens, people who've been in the military and people who despise the military. Begin to listen to people who've experienced the world differently than the way you have. Number two, once we start listening, we need to learn. I mean, we're Christians. Our faith is tethered to an event. We don't need to be afraid of new information. We don't need to be afraid of new knowledge. We don't need to be afraid of new opinions. Be curious. I saw this from Sam Harris. Pay attention to your frontiers of your ignorance. I love that. Pay attention. Don't turn away. Don't refuse to read that book. Don't turn, turn that off just because, you know, it disagrees with your worldview. Pay attention to the frontiers of your ignorance. Be a student first, not just a critic. You're an amazing critic without even one single lesson. But would you become a student and not just a critic? Otherwise, you're going to discount every bit of information that doesn't fit into your currently flawed worldview. If we don't listen to each other and learn from each other, we will discount anything that doesn't fit into our worldview perfectly. And we quit learning. When we quit learning, something bad happens on the inside. And I know you want better than that. Let me put it this way. If you're a Democrat... Your Republican brothers and sisters, they're not crazy. They aren't. If you're a Republican, your Democrat brothers and sisters are not crazy. Nobody's crazy. They just sit in a different place. They see the world in a different way. And as long as we catch ourselves saying, I don't know how anybody could believe that. I don't understand how anybody could behave that way. You're confessing something about you, not them. So why wouldn't we, especially within the body of Christ, take the time to understand because everybody's behavior makes perfect sense to them. Everybody's response makes perfect sense to them. Everybody's viewpoint, everybody's politics makes perfect sense to them. And when we don't understand, it's because we don't understand. In fact, if you're Republican, you need to know that, that the Democrats are really just like you. And if you're Democrats, you need to know Republicans are just like you. They're taking a stand based upon where they sit. Last thing, love. Never, please never, ever, ever burn a relational bridge over a political view. You say, well, you know, they started the fire on their end of the bridge. Don't start the fire on your end of the bridge. Never burn a bridge, a relational bridge over a political view. Because, and this goes back to Jesus' command. This goes back to the cross. This goes back to the epicenter of what we believe as Christians. That the you beside you is more precious to God than your potentially flawed view. A view that you've changed, you know, 10 years ago. A view that will change again in five years. Don't burn down a relational bridge over a political view. While you and the person you're burning the, the bridge down with, while both of you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. How dare I? How dare I burn down a relational bridge with someone for whom Christ died? How dare you do the same thing if you're a Jesus follower? So come on, let's listen, let's learn, let's love. Like I said last week, I, I know I, I can't help, you can't help but think this, you know, Jim, this is so naive. Do you really think this is gonna make a difference? Just remember this. Once upon a time, there was a handful of Jesus followers crushed between the empire and the temple. They gave to Caesar what's Caesar's and they gave to God what's God's, their lives. And now the empire is no more. The temple is no more. Rome's most famous emperor is nothing but a footnote in the story of Jesus of Nazareth. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Empires rise and empires fall. Jesus said, I'm gonna build my movement and nothing will ever stop it. And he did it. And nothing stopped it. And here we are. 
And it's our responsibility as Christians to find a way that even though we're going to disagree politically, we must love unconditionally and we must always pray for unity. Because at Calvary, at the cross, we lost our right to do anything less than that. Heavenly Father, I thank you. God, I thank you for, for such clarity, God, in times of what seemed chaos. God, in times of what feels and what seemed to be just overwhelming, God, pressure and, and, and anger and strife. And God, everywhere we look from social media to the newspaper to TV, God, wherever we, we kind of get our news, it just seems that, that there's this, this anger, this, this resentment, this division. But Father, I pray for our people. I pray for, the, for Journey. I pray for our city of Bangor and Hamden and Brewer and, and Orono, for the state of Maine, for the nation, God, for the United States, for our president and our senators and our congressmen. God, I pray that there would be unity. I pray that, that God, we would be united together over what Jesus did for us, over the fact that he created us all in his image, that we are all his image bearers, that we have value. And not only do we have value, but as people who follow Christ, we treat other people with that same value that Christ treated us. God, I pray that we would see the wisdom in this, God, and that we would be courageous enough to take that step forward. God, because that really is our only step forward. If we are going to progress as a nation, if we are going to succeed as a people, God, we need to come together as one. We need to love like Jesus loved. We need to listen. We need to learn. And we need to love. And I pray we would do that all in your son, our Savior's name. Amen. Journey, I love you. I pray during these climactic times of, of, of political unrest and diversion that you would push forward and you would find a way to be one, that you would push for unity, that you would listen, that you would learn something, and that you would love. Have a great week. Join me back here next week for part three of Talking Points.